that a little bit better? It would be better on my voice if I use this, I, I believe. So, thanks for coming. You made a big effort to get here, and I hope it was worth your time. Let's ask Scott, since he's already given us a picture on the screen after 15 minutes, let's ask Scott to bless our time. Father, we're here because you have made it possible for us to be here. You're the one who put each one of us here at this particular moment in time to be together. We'll never be together, this same group, ever again, probably, but we know exactly why we're here. And I ask that you would work in each person, me and everyone else here, to help us walk away with something that you have for us. We commit this time to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, mentoring in medicine, making it matter. It's, uh, I had to submit this like a year in advance. To get on the program, you've got to be quick on the draw. And so sometimes you submit a title and then you go, maybe that wasn't the best title, but you can't go back and redo it because they already got it on the program, right? So really, mentoring does matter. It's not making it matter. It does matter. And the thing about it is making it matter more or making it meaningful. But mentoring shows up all over the place, as I've just shared, and now you'll get to see the picture I took in the bathroom that I was talking about in just a minute. First of all, this is my tribe, my family, and I have heard it said that if you have kids and grandkids and a dog, your audience likes you. It's the way the audience likes you. So, there he is. Our oldest daughter is, uh, is on the, uh, I don't even know how to make this thing work. Anyway, she's on the left and she's a missionary in Africa. She's a nurse, a healthcare missionary, married with now with twins. You just got back from Africa. Uh, the younger daughter is a missionary in Birmingham, Alabama, with her three kids. And my wife and I are missionaries in Southeast Kentucky. So that's our tribe. And this is my other family, my working family at CMDA with the Center for Well-Being. And we have a boot. We love each other. We care for each other. And God has us doing some pretty cool things. And our mission is to really come alongside Christian healthcare professionals and help them, serve them, help them align with God, be spiritually right, help them optimize their well-being, because as you know, there's a lot of pain in medicine right now. If you didn't know that, just read the 3,000 articles per year published about burnout and well-being in the medical literature. And we want to help them maximize their influence, which is to help them with leadership. Okay? So those are the things that we do as a team in a variety of ways. Speaking, coaching, mentoring, training, all kinds of stuff. So this is work we set out to do. I think if you're going to get CME, this is a requirement. Also part of CME requirements are to give any disclaimers that the speaker has. I have disclaimers. I'm not an expert. Okay? I'm a family doctor. Family doctors are not experts. You know, we just aren't experts. And I'm a coach. And as you'll learn about coaching a little bit later, coaches are never the expert. So I'm a double non-expert. So I just want to give that disclaimer to you. Alright. This is a sign in the men's restroom. If you go down the hall, you'll it's only for the men's restroom. This, look at that, men's mentoring, right in the middle of it. In your program, CMDA, learn, mentor. In your program, GMHC, you have a mentor match. There's a website you can go to. You can link in, you can sign up, you can be a mentor, 
or you can be mentored. Whatever you're looking for, you can sign up for it. So, the, the one at GMHC says that we want to help you on your journey. Sign up for a mentor so we can help you on your journey. Well, you are on a journey, wherever you are. I'm on a journey. Everyone else is here on a journey called life. We're at different stages of that journey. And there are things that come along in our journey that challenge us. Each of us has mountains that come in the way, all right? Whether it's the mountain of pre-professional, I got to get into medical school mountain, whether it's a bigger mountain that says medical school and residency, and now you're going to add maybe even a higher mountain, Everest, which is this sense of I'm going overseas to do my thing in healthcare. So there are a lot of mountains that you are going to have to climb in order to get to where God wants you to do. It's not an easy path. And when the path is difficult, what do we need besides God? When the path is difficult is we need one another. We need people. We need others to come alongside of us. So when you hike on a mountain, if you have someone with you, this is research proven that you will go farther and you will go faster if you have someone else with you. In fact, they put people in a laboratory, they have them look at a mountain or a hill, and they say, how long will it take you to climb that hill? And they'll give an estimate, and then they'll tell them that you're going to climb it alone. Then they'll say, now you're going to go with your very best friend. Now, and they do this double blind or however they do it. If you're with a friend, the mountain looks not as high, and you get to the top sooner. So there's a perception even, and it's reality, that when you go through life with someone else, it's better. Okay? So living life with a, someone else. And I'll tell you that a mentor is going to be a big part of that. And you can reach your destination. So you grow faster, you go farther, and that's well-proven, and your well-being is enhanced. There's a whole host of medical articles that talk about mentoring and well-being and the avoidance and prevention of burnout for healthcare professionals. I'll tell you a story about my mentor, one of my mentors. I have been so fortunate through life to have many men who have been my mentors. Pete was one of my mentors. Pete, when he went to medical school, decided to be a pediatrician, finished his residency, took his wife, went to Korea. He was a missionary in Korea. About six years. Came back home to the States, got a master's in public health at the University of Minnesota, and then he did some research, and he decided that he wanted to go to the poorest county in the United States. He wanted to find the absolute poorest county in the United States, because he wanted to serve the poor. And so, he researched and found that there was a little town on the delta of Mississippi, and he loaded up his station wagon at that time, and his four daughters, and his wife, and they drove from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Cary, Mississippi. And his colleagues looked at him as if he was absolutely nuts. Crazy guy. And they looked at him, and they said, Pete, you won't be able to make a dent. You won't be able to make a difference. You won't be able to change the delta of Mississippi. What do you think you're doing? How are you going to change the delta of Mississippi? And without hesitation, Pete said, one life at a time. One life at a time. And that stuck with me. When I heard that story, one life at a time, 
And 30 years later, the infant mortality rates have remarkably decreased. The health of the Delta, boy, that sun is something else. Isn't it cold? I thought I was supposed to rain in snow. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be in the sunlight. Uh, and, and, uh, and one life at a time, what a difference it made over those 30 years of his spin. So anyway, he took this model, a little bit of this model, and he decided he wanted to do it internationally. I'm going to switch hands here because uh, that sunlight is difficult. And he decided he was going to do it internationally. So he took a job as an executive director of a missions sending organization. Actually, it was a domestic mission organization. I got to know Pete through CMDA with the domestic missions. I was practicing rural medicine in rural Kentucky, doing missionary medicine in America. Okay. And uh, so Pete and I got to know one another, and Pete started looking around the world saying, where can I find a Christian healthcare professional that I can match with an American, U.S.-based healthcare professional, and that they can mentor one another. They can get together and grow together. And so he did this, country after country, visiting places, asking people, who do you know here that's a good doctor? And he loves Jesus. Who's a good doctor who loves Jesus in this country? And he looked around and he identified those people. And then he'd tap on the shoulders of people like me. And he'd say, I got someone for you. And he would then help us get connected. And so one of those countries was Romania. If you know the story of Romania, and if you don't read the Colson book called The Body, chapter 6 or 5 or somewhere in there, it talks about the role of the church in the Romanian Revolution in 1989. And toward the end of 89, in December, this terrible dictator, Ceausescu, as my friend would say, was executive. That's what he calls it, executive. And uh, he was killed. And so Christianity was welcomed into Romania, suddenly. So almost every plane, it seemed, was filled with missionaries going to Romania in January of 1990. And Augustine and his wife, Mihaila, Augustine, attends an evangelistic meeting in January of 1990 and has never heard the gospel. Never. And it's like, wow, this is unbelievable. It grabs his heart. He loves Jesus and he decides, I've got to do something different with my life. So he joins a church and he starts a church-based clinic and says, I'm going to serve the poor and Pete, my mentor, gets up with Augustine because someone leads him to Augustine and says, here's a Christian, a doctor, under the heart for the poor, who loves Jesus. And I get to meet Augustine. And so for 30 years, year after year, even month by month on Skype or whatever, Augustine and I are meeting. We're talking. We're praying. We're conversing. We're strategizing around medicine and around life. And it goes on to this day. Every month I have a meeting with Augustine. The team grew. We developed more mentors because they needed business mentors, leader mentors, not just me. We needed people smarter than me with a broader swath of expertise than me. So I, I invited others to join me, friends of mine who were consultants and accountants and businessmen and medical managers and, and wealthy people. So I invited people to join me. So the new clinic got built. We invited some other doctors to come and join. So we did some endoscopy training. We did some clinical work to kind of get our foot in the door to meet some of the surgeons and folks like that. And the guy on the left, after these meetings, we would, we would show the Jesus movie. And Dan Booker, the guy on the left, 
found Jesus. He never heard the gospel either, but because of the testimony of Chip, the guy next to him, the American gastroenterologist, sharing the gospel, Tam comes to faith in Christ. We hosted conferences. We began to teach and train. And the conferences at first were clinically oriented uh, around different topics related to medicine, but ultimately the things that got the most attention was a conference we entitled The Life of the Doctor. And it talked about marriage and parenting and well-being and burnout and things like that. And that's where we really began to make an impact with the Romanian physicians who were coming now to this clinic and working there. And so we had conferences. And then we extended the work internationally. We invited some international doctors to come and learn from our clinic in Romania. So the neighboring countries of Hungary and Ukraine, these are doctors from Hungary and Ukraine, came to join us. And now, one of these doctors, Gabor on the right, he leads an international Christian healthcare ministry called the International Stadium, where he trains evangelistically doctors, healthcare professionals all over the planet to tell people about Jesus using healthcare. And, and Gabor came, came early on in his career, came and said, I want, I want to join you and see what, what, what this looks like. What does sharing faith with patients. What does doing spiritual history look like? So he spent a week or ten days in our home and he got to see what it looks like to share Jesus' conversations with patients. We are all leaders in a sense because when you look at leader and its definition of an influencer, we all have a sphere of influence. Relationships that are meaningful in our lives. And so mentorship is an extension of that influence where we're more intentional about putting our fingerprints on the life of another person. The history, uh, some of you are historians. I get distracted sometimes by history, but uh, so the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer, right? I won't test you on all of this, but uh, so around the, the 8th century BC or so, uh, this, uh, this warrior, this king of Ithaca, uh, is going off to war in Asia, and he has a son, and he entrusts his son to a very good friend called Mentor. Okay, so the word mentor is originated from this relationship of Odysseus, Ulysses in Latin, entrusting his son, Telemachus, his son, to Mentor. And he went off to war, and he came back. He's going to come back in 10 years, but it took him 20 years to get back. And Mentor protected his dad's wife from all the suitors that were coming around, so his dad could come back and be king and step into the family life again with the help of Athena and some other gods and goddesses, of course. But that's the origination. Now, in medicine, we know about mentorship, kind of. Why? This is, uh, this is William Hall said. I don't know how many of you are historians of medicine. But at Johns Hopkins University, back at the turn of the century, uh, late 1890s or so, the Hopkins Hospital was founded, the Hopkins Medical School was founded, and William Halstead, who's a surgeon, was one of the four founders of this, this hospital and this medical school. He was also joined by Sir William Osler, who some of you have heard of, a Canadian internist, and an OBGYN, a pathologist, and Halstead, uh, really sort of regimented the training, the kind of apprenticeship, the residency models we know about today, and so did Oscar with his bedside teaching. But Paul said, 
trained surgeon after surgeon after surgeon who lived in the hospital with him, worked like dogs, and learned the trade surgery. And many of those went on around the country, Cushing, uh, others went around the country and started programs. And uh, also was an interesting guy. Uh, he was really tireless at the beginning of his career, and they finally figured out it was because he was taking so much cocaine because they've been experimenting in the lab trying to figure out how cocaine and morphine could help with anesthesia. So he's a cocaine addict, and then they became a morphine addict. And toward the end of his career, he really didn't show up for work very much. They couldn't find him. And anyway, he's an odd duck. But nonetheless, he started these residency programs, and they're still here today. Maybe not quite so harsh as they were in former days, but they're still here with us today. So that's William Halstead. So what is it, really? What is meant when you talk about it a lot? But a lot of things, you ever notice that you talk about a lot of things you don't really know what you're talking about? And you find yourself looking up a word and you say, I use that word, but I'm not sure I know exactly what I mean when I use that word. And now, of course, with our iPhones and Google, you can just say, hey, Siri, tell me what that word means. And uh, sometimes you're surprised by what you thought. That may or may not be true. But anyway, mentoring is a sense of of someone who has experience, someone who has knowledge. There's this, I wouldn't call it transfer, it's not a Vulcan mind meld. I mean, it's this sense of how is it that you share information. Someone who's maybe further down the road, someone who has more experience, someone who has wisdom. And don't worry so much about taking notes. You can have any of these signs if you want them. You'll just have to email to me to get them, and uh, I promise I'll get them to you. Uh, just like they promised these sides would work. It might take a little while. But. So it's this, it's this way of getting information from one person to another. It's interesting, my medical school in Milwaukee uh, and different medical schools around the country are doing this, right? They are, they are talking about mentoring. They're setting up mentoring programs. And I really kind of liked the heading here. Connections. Connections for wisdom and wellness. And I thought, wow. Maybe I'll sign up to be a mentor for my old medical school. And uh, so they offer this to students and alumni to get connected through their medical school. So mentoring takes a mentor and a mentee, or a protege, or whatever you want to call it. So there's a mentor and a mentee. And the mentor is the usually older, not always, a teacher, a helper, an advisor, Someone who's experienced, usually older, and trusted. Trust is very important. Relationally, trust is critical. And when you study trust, how is it that you come to trust someone? There's really two major components of trust. There's a component that we know is what we call functional trust. Okay, that means, does someone show up when they say they're going to show up? Do they do the job they say they're going to do? It's that reliability factor. When that guy tells me, when that gal tells me she's going to get something done, it gets done. I trust them to get the job done. That's the reliability factor. Then you have the relatability factor. That's a different kind of trust. That's a kind of trust that requires authenticity, sometimes vulnerability, transparency, empathy, the capacity to really, truly connect with someone so that they feel safe around you. And you feel safe around them. And you would trust them with your life, almost. Uh, you really are safe around that person. So there's functional trust and there's relational trust. 
But these are both important in a mentoring relationship if you want to have an optimal mentoring relationship. Now, there are some distinctions, and it's good to get clear in your mind what some of these distinctions are. I am a professional coach. I'm a family doctor, but that was in a former life. I did that for 30 years. But now I'm a physician coach. So I work with doctors around themes of well-being, uh, burnout prevention, leadership, life management, things like that. Um, so the difference is, I mean, there's a whole host of differences, but if you look at this a little bit, you know, it depends on what that other person needs at that point on their journey. So when I, when I encounter someone, you know, the question I ask myself is, what does this person need at this point on their journey? What do they need? Do they need a consultant? You got a problem? They need to fix it. Someone has the expertise that comes to the table and fixes their problem. Do they need counseling because they're stuck on something in the past, a wound or something that needs healing, mental healing? Or does it need a mentor? You need to be wearing this. Oh, sorry. Did I forget that vital sign? Oh, boy. I just got a D minus for that. Uh, sorry. All right, for those of you listening for the first time, we are one-third through the talk that I just missed by not putting this on. So I'm sorry you missed it, and uh, you'll just have to email me at steve.sartori at cmda.org, and I will get you the slides. Okay? Thank you. Um, so uh, the distinctions. So as a coach, you know, the client's the expert. As a coach, I'm not sharing my experience. I'm not sharing my wisdom. Even if I think it could be helpful, I, if I'm a pure coach, I'm not doing that. I'm helping people solve their own problems, see things from different perspectives to figure out how, who they need to talk to, figure out what resources they need. Uh, they're the expert on their life. And people generally, they don't do what you tell them to do anyway. <laughs> they do what they tell themselves to do. So really, sometimes your expertise and your wisdom is overrated by you. And so I, it's not always that they need what I know. And so that's a, that's a coach, you know. If, if you make these assumptions, usually with a counselor or consultant, you know, they got a problem, they got something that needs to be fixed. Uh, with a mentor, they just need to grow and develop, and they're inexperienced. And with a coach, yeah, they're healthy. They just have a goal that they need to reach. And so, and they all have different time frames and results that they focus on. But but you kind of got to know what lane you're in. And sometimes people kind of migrate all across the board, right? We wear different hats, and sometimes someone needs, as a friend, maybe they just need me to counsel them. Maybe they need me to tell them what to do. Maybe they need me to just come alongside them. Maybe they need me to ask them a good question. So we kind of got to know what is a mentor who comes alongside. And I think of a mentor as a bit of a guide, someone who's really kind of been there before, has been on the path before, knows where the pitfalls are, uh, can maybe send an appropriate warning at an appropriate time, can know how to put on a coaching hat and ask some good questions and not solve all the mentor's problems for them. they got to do some of the work, right? But a mentor has to kind of know how to navigate these, these waters. And so some of the skills of coaching, if you want to be a certified coach, you have to go through training, credentialing, experience, examination, all of that, these are some of the competencies or the skills that you have to demonstrate if you're going to be a professional coach. And I think it wise for mentors to have coaching skills. And we even teach a course now at CMDA called Mentoring with a Coach Approach. Mentoring with a Coach Approach. 
And so what that does is we help mentors have some of the coaching skills that can be helpful because their wisdom and experience is not always exactly what their mentee needs. And so the mindset, do you really believe that the person you're with is capable? Do you really believe that they're resourceful? Do you really believe that they're made in the image of God and God has given them what they need for life and godliness? That's what the scripture says, right? Second Peter 1.3, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. All grace abounds so that you have it available to you. So we have to have this mindset that the other person is creative, resourceful, and whole, and is capable. And listening. Are you someone who likes to uh, talk a lot? I am. And when I, when I coach, I talk about 20% of the time at the most. So it's a different mindset of letting someone else have the floor, letting someone else talk. Because people actually learn when they listen to themselves, believe it or not. Lip, you know, thoughts become clear when they cross the lips or fingertips, right? So when you speak and when you write, your own thoughts become clearer. And so helping someone to do that is a big service to them. Listening to the end, not interrupting, not filling in words. Ask yourself, wait, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? So ask yourself that question sometimes, why am I talking? Um, observing. You can see things in other people that they can't see in themselves. You've heard the term blind spots, right? There are things we don't know about ourselves that other people actually see more clearly in us. Uh, like my wife, you know, I mean, they can see things that you can't see and you need the feedback. So observation can be helpful. Encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement. Who doesn't want to be encouraged? Who doesn't want to be told good job? Who doesn't want to be said, boy, you did that great? You know, we all need encouragement. And then questions, powerful questions, not the kinds of questions you ask in the examination room where you want in one minute the entire history of the patient and you just want a yes-no question because you've got to fill out the forms on the EMR and please don't take time to converse with me about anything else. Just say yes or no, that's all, okay? It's not that kind of, uh, of, a, of a questioning. It's not an interrogation. It's open-ended questions that allow conversation to continue that you don't know the answer to and they don't know the answer to. It's just a wide open question that we can kind of dance in the moment and have fun with. So how do you run this process? You know, it's not like there is a defined mentoring process. I don't want you to leave here and say, oh, Dr. Sartoy scripted out this process. And if I follow the A, B, C, D, E, Fs or whatever, it's all going to go fine. It's a flexible thing, right? Relationships are really not formulaic. Did you ever notice that? You know, relationships are messy. They don't follow an algorithm. And so mentoring is kind of like that. But there are some principles that I think can be helpful for us as we navigate this thing called mentoring. So start with the end in mind, right? That's the second principle from Covey's book. So before you start mentoring, if you're going to be a mentee or a mentor, think about it. <laughs> think about it a little bit before you engage. Now, sometimes it happens organically and you're in a mentoring relationship and you didn't even realize you were in a mentoring relationship. But I think intentionality is helpful to make it more effective. So there are some things to think about. Who am I going to match up with? Now, there are some mentor programs like the one I showed you from my medical school in Milwaukee and they were happy to help me send my name in and they would assign me someone. Well, that can work, 
But I'm, I would suggest that might not be the very best way. Who knows how that's going to go, right? It's a random, it's like a blind date, right? Who knows how that's going to go? And so I think there are some things that as a mentee or a, someone who wants a mentor, because when we survey residents and we survey medical students and we survey pre-medical students who are interested in career admissions or whatever, they all say, I want a, I want a mentor. And not all, but many of them say, I'd really like a mentor, but I don't know where to go to find one. And there are a lot of mentors that say, I'm happy to mentor, but I don't know where to go to find a mentee. And so this match is, how does that work? Well, I am convinced that if you are looking for one, you oftentimes find what you're looking for. Okay? So if you're looking for a mentor, and you keep your eyes open, and you keep your ears open, and you say, who around me in my life do I kind of really like to hang around with, who seems to be wise, who seems to be mature, who has life experience. And I, I think we could connect. I think there's some affinity there. And I think there's some alignment of values and you know worldview and things that would be helpful as well. And, and there are some character traits I really like about this person. And I, I almost think I'd kind of like to grow up to be a little bit like them, you know, not a duplicate, but I'd like to, you know, have some of those attributes myself. And then proximity means simply that, you know, are they in my domain? Because I really believe mentoring can work virtually, but I think it works better personally face-to-face. So if you can find that, if you begin to look around and you say, who is there? You know, they're close to me. I understand them. They're wise. I respect them. They're a good doctor a good nurse, or whatever, they follow Jesus, they're a leader in their church, they have a good family, or whatever you're looking for, you know, you can probably find someone like that. And if you're a mentor, you're looking around at someone that you say, wow, boy, that young man, that young woman, that person, you know, boy, I'd love to get to know them better. They seem to be on the ball. They seem to really have a heart for God. When I stepped into it, during the pandemic, you know, there was a, a lot of, time kind of away from church, you know, you're, going, you're virtual churching or whatever you're doing. And, uh, and we, after the pandemic was over, my wife and I visited this church that we would have never visited if it weren't for the pandemic. And I walked into that church, and there were four men in there right away that first day. And I looked around the room, and I listened to some of these, and I talked to some of these, and I said, wow, I would be happy to connect and meet with any of these four young men in that church. So I'm still looking for continuing to build relationships with those four young men. So, But I'm not asking them to be a mentee because I also believe that when the mentee initiates the invite and really wants it, you don't want to give someone something they don't want. You don't want to give a gift that they don't want to receive. Okay, But if someone asks and you have it, give it. So there's a sense that I think it works better. It's kind of like when I have a coaching client, when this will happen sometimes, uh, someone will call me and say, I want you to coach my brother. I want you to coach my friend. I I said, well, do do they want to be coached? Or is it just that you want them to be coached? I said, I want to talk with them. I want them to tell me that they want to be coached. I'm not going to coach someone who doesn't want to be coached. So I believe it really has to be a desire to be mentored. And then I think having a few ground rules, you know, relationships with ground rules, nothing wrong with that. I think setting up a few guidelines in advance, it says, what are we getting into here? 
what are we going to do? And so you begin to think, what does the mentee want? What do you want out of this relationship? Because we don't just want to hang out without intent, without purpose. That's what I like about coaching. It's a very purpose-driven kind of relationship. And so what are we going to be doing? What are the expectations? How much demand is this going to put on me? How much do you have? Do you you have an hour every month? Do you have an hour every couple weeks? Do you have a schedule that gives you a chance to connect? I mean, if you can't work out the logistics, how is it going to work, right? So the expectations, the duration, how long are we going to do this? Are we going to do this for a month? Are we going to do this for six months? Are we going to do this for a year? What do you think that we should kind of aim for as far as the duration? Longitudinal relationships generally go deeper over time. Okay, So you need enough time to make it worthwhile. If someone says, I want to coach with you for one session, I say, I'll do that. But I said, there's a bit of a learning curve and a relational curve that makes it better over time. So committing to a, a duration. Meetings. When are we going to get together? Where are we going to get together? We're going to meet at a coffee shop. We're going to meet in a room at the hospital. We're going to meet at my home. We're going to meet wherever. But you've got to work out some of those things. And then how are we going to evaluate along the way how this is going? Because sometimes you get into a mentoring relationship, and it's really not going that well. I mean, people aren't making progress, and it's kind of, oh, I'm not really looking forward to that mentoring meeting with my mentor. And when that begins to seep into it, you need to be bold enough to address it instead of just letting it go and say, you know, how are we doing here? How's your experience? How's my experience? What could we do to make it better? What's really good here? What do we want to do differently? Do we want to keep going? And if not, well, let's both step away from this. And if so, let's make the adjustments that are necessary so we redeem the time and make it highly useful for each of us. So... Evaluation. Lots of things to talk about, right? There's no end of things to talk about. Life is complicated, as my grandson says. And so there's lots of things to talk about. You might talk about career. A lot of people want to say, wow, I don't know what specialty I want to choose. You know, so I want to meet with a surgeon because I think I want to be a surgeon. I'm not sure I want to be a surgeon, but I want to hang out with a surgeon to see what a surgeon's life is like or a family doc, or a gynecologist, or whatever. So a lot of this is around career. Sometimes it's around career, even fellowship moves, or where should I go to medical school, or where should I be a missionary, or this kind of stuff. Life. Most mentoring ultimately morphs into what I call life mentoring, where there's a lot of life that happens. You know, how do I relate well to my spouse? How do I be a good parent? How do I be a good church attender? How do I relate to my colleague? How do I relate to the nurses at the hospital? How do I relate to my program director? How do, there's a lot of relation stuff, life stuff. How do I balance time? What do I do with my free time? What do I do when I don't have any free time or don't seem to have any free time? And so that's part of it. Leadership. What, how do I influence people? How do I leverage my influence? How do I be a good, uh, a good leader? What about faith? A lot of it comes down to, you know, when you're mentoring, if it's Christian and Christian, then topics of faith are integrated into all conversations because now you're talking about what does God have in mind from this mentoring relationship? What does God have in mind for the life? And then well-being and resilience. And resilience is multifaceted, right? Those of you who've Read about resilience. The, the Sentinel book is by Southwick and Charney, two psychiatrists in New York. And they identified uh, ten factors uh, that were primary factors in growing resilience. 
But when you analyze the ten factors, they fall from my perspective. I'm kind of a lumper, not a splitter. You know, I like to make things simple. Maybe three things to remember, not ten. Maybe four will stretch me. Five. Uh, But anyway, so to me, it's either the three R's or the ABC's, depending on whether you like alliteration or whether you like an acronym. Okay? So if you like R's, then it's routines, relationships, and religion, which means that these resilience factors come down to our daily habits. What do we do on a regular basis to, to build our own resilience to stay healthy? Relationships, how do we relate to people? Because relationships are a foundational pillar of resilience. People live longer with good relationships. The Harvard Grant study proved that pretty well, that the most important thing at the end of the life wasn't what position you held or what you know, life fulfillment was based on relationships. It wasn't based on your affluence. It wasn't based on any of that. It was based on relationships. And then religion, which is a category that for many kind of goes, uh, religion, but it talks about calling, meaning, purpose, the greater good. However you want to describe it, if you don't like the, I, I'm trying to find another R word, but it was hard. But for most people, spirituality and religion do interface. They have a religious belief, a religious heritage, something. And so the ABC is same thing. Agency. What choices do you make on a regular basis to keep yourself healthy? Okay. Belonging. Who's your community? Who do you connect with? Who's your 3 a.m. friend? You know, you remember there's a book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, how the decline of social structures in the United States, relationships have been declining, our close relationships are going away, and somehow Facebook and Instagram isn't quite filling the void. Okay? Real relationships. And then a sense of, of calling. What is the meaning of my life? What is God doing in my life? Where's my passion? Where's meaning and purpose? And these are all very important things for us to avoid burnout and for us to advance our own well-being. And then, uh, a a few months back, I was speaking to a group of uh, OBGYNs, and we were talking about moral resilience. If there's ever been a time and a need for moral resilience, this is the time, because we live in a world with lots of moral conflict. Conflicts in our consciences, right? Conflicts. And so how do you manage that? Where does your morality, where is it founded? Where does it arise from? What is it? Do you even know what the moral principles that drive your life are? Where do they come from? How do they develop? What are you going to do with it? When your morality and your own convictions are threatened, what are you going to do and what happens and how do you manage that? And that ends up with a lot of what we call moral distress, moral injury, and it's rampant. If you're in healthcare, I can give you a 100% guarantee you will experience moral distress, moral stress, and you'll need to know what to do with it. And one of the coping mechanisms for it is to both understand yourself and your beliefs and why you believe what you believe and to cultivate that and articulate it in a community, okay? And even Wendy Dean, who's a psychiatrist, who's a co-founder of the Moral Injury of Healthcare, writes in the AMA Journal of Ethics about the need for mentoring and role modeling by more seasoned colleagues to help people address the conflict, the dissonance that occurs when you have a conflict in your personal beliefs and what seems to be your professional obligation or maybe a professional imposition, or maybe a requirement, 
or whatever it is, what are you going to do when that happens? Okay? And some of you in this room may lose your jobs because that happens. Because you face persecution because of your beliefs and your morality. That's not surprising. Okay? I think it was Jesus who said, guess what? They hated me. And if you want to follow me, they will hate you too. So that's what you signed up for. And that's what you're going to get. Uh, a framework. This is a, a book by a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, one of our co-coaches at uh, CMDA, Ken Jones. And sometimes, you know, when you're coaching or when you're mentoring or coaching, it's a little different with mentoring than it is coaching, but when you're mentoring... Uh, sometimes it's helpful to have a framework. By that I mean, what is it you're going to talk about when you meet mentor and mentee? Are you going to design something that at least initially you're going to think that this might work? doesn't mean you can't flex it and change it, and, but, but having a plan is a good idea, even if the plan doesn't come. Eisenhower said planning is a great thing. Plans don't work, but planning is a good thing. So planning is a good thing here, and uh, this is just one Possibility. We teach a course called Mentoring with a Coach Approach. It's taught by Ken, and he uses the book as a template and a framework for a series of conversations. talks about the seven days. Okay, Everybody knows about seven days a week. He wrote a book about the seven days. And so typically we've set up a nine-month curriculum, basically a nine-month mentoring experience, that says if you have an initial meeting and you have a, an ending meeting, a debriefing meeting, in between, there are seven weeks or seven months usually. It's once a month typically. They talk about things. And these are the seven things you might talk about. This is life mentoring. So someday, a chance to talk about dreaming. A chance to talk about what do you really want at the end of the day? What, what, what are you really dreaming about? What is your passion? What are you really thinking about happening one day? I'll be in the mission field and... Bangladesh and people will be coming to faith and I'll be doing a full scope of family medicine or whatever. What are you dreaming about? What do you, what do you want to happen? That's the day for dreaming, some day, any day. Well, that's when you're kind of in medical school and you're wondering, boy, I'm hoping the day comes when I'm done with school, I can get a real job or I can get a real paycheck or I can go to the mission field or whatever, but right now I just got to gut it out. Okay, right now I've got to finish this before I can go on to the next place. So it's a day for waiting. It's a day for perseverance. It's a day for resilience. It's a time of preparing. Every day, that's what habits are you developing now that are meaningful? And talking about that with your mentee. What is it that you're doing every day? What are routines? What are rhythms of life? Because habits make a life over time. Little by little, a little becomes a lot, right? That's a Tanzanian proverb. So Every little bitty thing ultimately adds up. Yesterday, a time for remembering. This is something that coaches don't do, but mentors do, because we ask people, are there things holding you back? Are there wounds and scars from the past? What's the difference between a wound and a scar? How have you grown? What have you learned from the past? Do you have any regrets? You know, just a chance to talk about and hash some of that out. There's a guy, Daniel Pink, who wrote a book called The Power of Regret. And in that book, he talks about what is the value of a regret? What is the value of a regret? 
And he says, in short, that the value of a regret is that it reveals to you what's important to you. What is the value of yours? Because you regret not living into that value or into that thing you believe in so deeply. And actually, I listened to a podcast with him, and the interviewer very adeptly said, you wrote this book called The Power of Regret. So I'm going to ask you an obvious question. What regrets do you have? And he said, the regret that I have is that I didn't find a mentor. Is that I didn't find a mentor. Because I think I could have avoided a lot of pitfalls and arrived sooner at the destination I wanted to arrive at. So I regret, I found it interesting, the guy who wrote The Power of Regret regretted not finding a mentor. Uh, Today, that's for now. What am I noticing today that's meaningful? What am I paying attention to today? What's getting my attention today? I mean, if you reflect on today, already I've been thinking about today, and I think, wow, God brought so many people across my path, I almost forgot I was supposed to speak at 4 o'clock. I was like, wow, all these people that I know over the years, and it's their lives, and connecting again, and wow, it was wonderful. So today, what are you noticing that's meaningful today? Tomorrow. Really? For sure? Tomorrow. Are you anxious about tomorrow? Are you excited about tomorrow? Are you anticipating tomorrow? What's going on with tomorrow as you think about tomorrow? Are you procrastinating something, putting something off that could be done today? Are you like Mark Twain who said, don't put off till tomorrow what you can put off till the day after tomorrow? <laughs> no, don't, don't be like Mark Twain. Uh, a day of rest, that sense of Sabbath, that sense of building in, that rhythm of rest. And that day of rest, thinking even long term about that eternal day of rest, what is it? at the end of life, that you want your life to look like? What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? What do you want your legacy to be? Remember Pete, my mentor? His legacy is that people, 80 programs, 40 countries around the world, lives being changed one life at a time. So Pete's mantra of one life at a time is still going on, right? All right, so now the challenge is for you to think, okay, what about me? What about me? So I want you to ask yourself a few questions, and uh, then I'll let you ask me some questions. But as coaches, we ask questions. We usually don't answer questions. So what have you learned? What, What has hit home for you just in listening to this? What has really caught your attention or maybe piqued some interest or maybe prompted something in you, what opportunities are now arising? So you've learned a couple of things. Not a lot, but you've learned a couple of things. Now, what do you, what are, what are you thinking about doing with what you've been learning, right? It's the action. And then, take it another step. What will you commit to doing? Gail Matthews at Dominican University says, the trifecta of goal accomplishment, three things, Okay. You speak it, you tell someone else what you're planning to do, you write it down, and you monitor your progress and you ask someone else to help you monitor your progress. This is called accountability, right? So I would urge you that if you've learned something, mark it down. If 
you see an opportunity arising and you're even willing to commit to it, tell someone, write it down, and ask someone to check in on you and see how you're doing with that. What will you commit to doing? So at the end of the day, this is in JAMA, this or April 21. So Harold Bauchner, the editor-in-chief of JAMA, he's talking about his mentors. He's reflecting on two of his career mentors, Jerry and Joel. He says they also became friends. They became colleagues. And I never doubted, I never doubted for a moment that what they wanted for me was what I wanted for me. So do you want for your mentor what you want for them or what they want for themselves? Helping people realize and achieve what they want. Okay, It's kind of like you've heard the golden rule, do unto others as you would like done unto you, but there's a better rule than that. It's called the platinum rule. Maybe you've heard of it. Do unto others as they want done unto them. Right? Because the way you want to be treated may not be exactly what the other person wants. If you ever read the love languages, right, you know that the way you receive love isn't the way someone else receives love necessarily. So you've got to speak the language of the other person. You've got to be thinking, just because I think this way doesn't mean that they think this way. They're not me. They're unique. Remember, everyone is unique. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Be yourself, right? So, and as Dr. Seuss said, you are you that is truer than true. In fact, there is no one else. You are than you, right? So that's Dr. Seuss's wisdom. So anyway, if you want to get the slides in a PDF format, just send steve.sartoy at cmda.org. There are resources in there. That medical missions one I put in today because that was in your book. Uh, and then the CMDA Mentor Network. CMDA runs a mentor network. There's coach training where you can learn if you're a mentor how to use coaching skills. There's mentoring with a coach approach training. We run these courses every semester. Usually there's one in the fall, one in the spring. Uh, we're in the middle of a coach training right now. We'll have another one starting January 3. Uh, there's MedSend mentors. So MedSend, we train, our, our, our group trains MedSend alumni in coaching skills so they can connect with people who are new grantees who are receiving grants from MedSend so that they can get support on the field from a trained mentor coach. And then we have peer groups where we actually just facilitate kind of mission uh, peer support. And uh, we do that with a coach approach as well. So those are some of the things we do. Bibliography, we've got articles. And now it's your turn. If you need to go, I know it's five. We started uh, actually at quarter after. So actually I got in well under my time. but. Some of you don't know that. New people listening here don't know that we started late, and I really didn't go too long. All right. So feel free to leave. Uh, yes, sir. That one? Okay. Gotcha. Uh, who else? Let me ask. Let me ask you. What are you going to take away? What's something that actually kind of uh, you paid attention to? I mean, I know you were paying attention other than a few of you sleeping, but uh, what, what's something that caught your attention or that you're going to take away? Intentional and seeking a mentor and having that time be productive. So he's saying for the purposes of the recording here, be intentional about it. Just don't be random, right? Be intentional about picking out a mentor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the time that you spend with them, it's meaningful, it's organized, purposeful. Yeah, organize your time together. Make it, make it useful. Be intentional about how you're going to use that time. Time is valuable, right? We need to use the time wisely. Be good stewards of the time. Let's see. Not the not the framework. That thing or no, the agreement piece? I think yeah. Or how you match with someone? The agreement piece. Alright. Who else? A learning point to share with someone. Because remember if you share it, it's gonna stick. If you speak it out loud, it's gonna stick. Otherwise you're gonna walk out of here and forget it, potentially. Yes. I like your point about yeah. I've definitely been in situations where I feel bad, like, not not being in that relationship anymore, but I think if it's not serving you, right. it's a good point to, to yeah. make it, um, we, evaluate that periodically. Yeah, so she's talking about, you know, we need to know when the time is up. You know, maybe it served its purpose, maybe we're done. Maybe it's not working that well, but really, and vocalizing and discussing it and being courageous about it. Not harsh, just... Real, real. <laughs> just real. Yeah. One more. Yeah. The last point when you mentioned of placing a rule, and it's something that you always talk about the rule, but then something that you, in their perspective, what they really want, what they When we are so interested in someone else that it's about what they want, it's about their life. It's not God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life, right? It's God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life and let me come journey with you so we can discover that together. And, uh, you know, that's it's being other-oriented, being other-oriented, mentee-oriented. Anything else? Steve, I like your little tool, wait. As a counselor, I have to shut up. And uh, why am I talking? If you... Think about that strategic, not just I should be quiet, but strategically, why am I, how does what I'm saying fit the strategy for this person's good, or is it just, am I rambling? Yeah. You know, taming the tongue, who can tame the tongue, right? We all like to hear ourselves talk, it seems, and why am I talking? Remember the words listen and silent? Same letters, right? Just rearranged a little bit, so... Yeah, why am I talking? Anything else? <clears throat> I had a question on the courses that CMDA um, offers, like do the uh, FCPA mentorship group. Um, do you have like a recommendation of which course to take first? Or You know, that's a really good question. Uh, if you're planning to be a mentor, I would take the mentoring with a coach approach course first. What happens there is you get kind of a taste of coaching, the mentor training course. I would take that first. And then I think some of the people in that class will then move into the coaching training course so that they kind of even get a better dose and better skills at coaching so they can import that into their mentoring. We do have people in our mentor training course right now who took the coach training course first because the mentor training course is a newer course and they'd already taken the coach training course and now they wanted to see how their coaching skills could translate into a mentoring relationship. But if I were advising, I would say take mentor training and then take coach training. Yeah. I'll hang out if you, anybody wants to, you know, I'll hang out uh, and uh, 
Thanks, everyone, for your attention. Thank you.